as we uh, come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, we thank you that your Word is true, it is accurate, speaks today, that uh, gives us wisdom for salvation, that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You give us everything we need for life today in your Word. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see your purposes in it, help us to uh, believe in Jesus, the one who calls us to himself through this text. Um, We pray that as you open our hearts to believe, you'd help our minds to pay attention. We give you thanks together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going through a series here at City Reach Marion for the book of Genesis, or the book of beginnings, as you heard it mentioned before. And a good way to think about this series is foundations for life. The book of Genesis gives us a worldview, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, of how to look at everything in life from a biblical perspective. It takes us right to when everything began and God said, let there be, and gives us an understanding of how the world ought to be. So for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at God himself and his creation, and now we come to the topic of work. We're slowing down a little bit because there's so much in this text. It's very hard to get out everything you might want to extract from it. And so we're just going to take one week to look at the topic of work from our biblical text and just get a few foundations for how we might uh, interpret the idea of work through a biblical lens. Again, as part of this series, it's like wearing glasses and having those lenses that you see everything through in the same way we're putting on a biblical lens so that we might interpret the world that we live in and the lives that we lead in light of what we have here for us today. Now, when it comes to work, I have two pictures for you which might help you get an idea of the Australian uh, understanding of work. People say you either work to live or you live to work. You work to live or you live to work. That's kind of the Australian dichotomy or polar opposites that we have. So when you live to work, my wife and I were at a family dinner several years ago in the city. It was probably 7 p.m. And we're sitting there enjoying our uh, pasta and pizza in a nice Italian restaurant. And we looked up and we saw an office worker uh, sitting uh, in his chair 7 p.m. at night on a Friday, still typing at the computer doing things. And, you know, we thought, oh, poor guy, still working, 7 p.m. at night. Half an hour later, we see he's actually wearing his bicycle helmet, getting ready to get on the bike and get home. But then he's back on the computer, still working away, because there was some email that he forgot to do. I think pretty much when we left, he was still there with the helmet on, sitting at his computer, working, and we just finished a nice dinner and we're on our way home. So that's uh, living to work. Your life is about work. On the other hand... Uh, picture this, those who work to live. It's actually about the life outside of work that you enjoy. And so picture the uh, tradies who um, you know, put the, pack the surfboards in the back of the, uh, the van. They drive down to the work site. The boss comes in, checks on them in the morning. Boss uh, so, you know, ducks out to the next job site. The tradies put their wetsuits on, get on the surfboards, go out for a quick surf, back before lunch and then do a few hours' work and then off home about 3.30 p.m. That does happen, by the way. I know that happens. (laughs) Uh, So, yes, 
Keep an eye on the tradies that are at your house sometimes. And if you're a tradie, you've done that. You do need to repent. That is wrong. Uh, but that's, that's the dichotomy that we live in in Australia, right? We're either living to work or working to live. But God has a different way of looking at things. And actually, both of those paths don't work. You're either lazy or you're living for you know, fun and enjoyment, but work is really meaningless to you, or you're consumed by work. And really, it rules over you. You become a slave to it. But firstly, and we want to look this morning at God's design of work, his design of work. And it's a good design. It is a good design. We actually see in our text that work was given to us before the fall. So again, Genesis 1 to 3 gives us the beginnings, the world before sin entered it. And it's very hard for us to comprehend But a good way to think about it is a world with complete and total goodness, the absence of every form of evil, decay, and corruption. That is what we see, and we see a world where work is part of God's intention for people. As in work isn't a result of human beings doing bad things. Work is a result of God's good intention for us. It's what we call a pre-fall era. Work is Good. God calls it good. God made us to work. Now, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, this is in direct contrast to the other nations of the ancient Near East. I referred to the, um, the Babylonian mythology, creation mythology, called Enuma Elish, where what they described as a human being's creation was for slavery. The job of humans was to be the slaves of the gods because the gods were lazy. They didn't want to work, but they needed to get stuff done. So they made humans in order to be their slaves and they would rule over them with an iron fist. And yet here we see the opposite. We see God works, right? God works six days. God does it, you know, all this creation and invites humanity into his work as a blessing, as fulfillment, as fruitfulness. It's a totally different world view. Work doesn't rule over us like slavery, and yet we're not to avoid work. We're to take pleasure and enjoyment from it. We know that God worked. Genesis 2.2 sort of gives us a a good understanding of it. It says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Notice who's doing the work there. God is. Almost every other religious or faith system has humanity doing all the work in order to achieve blessings and things. And here we see God does the work and he gives the blessing without needing anything himself. It is the opposite of the way human beings generally think. And that is why this lens is so important for us. Work is a good design. A good way to think about this is imagine a father with his daughter. Now the father goes out to work on, uh, do a, like service the car, you know, change uh, the oil filter, change over the oil, you know, might look at the spark plugs, you know, just checks that all the levels are right. And his daughter pops out and says, hey, dad, what are you doing? And dad says, oh, I'm servicing the car. And uh, the daughter says, well, can I help? And dad says, yes, I'd love you to help. Dad doesn't say, go away, you're annoying me, I just need to get this done. But Dad knows, of course, that getting the servicing down on the car would be much quicker if he did it himself, right? 
dad knows that he actually knows everything that needs to happen, the order it needs to happen in, hopefully, and he can just do it much easier without the daughter's interference. And so why would he say yes when daughter pops out and wants to give him a hand? Because he loves the daughter. He wants to include the daughter in doing something that's interesting, you know, that's tactile, that's a bonding experience, doesn't need the daughter whatsoever, but invites her in to participate. God is much the same. God doesn't need us for anything. God did it all. Made everything through his words. And yet he invites us to have dominion over this world, to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful in it and multiply. He invites us into his creation to be builders in it, in his image. We learn in our text, we're made in the image of God. One of the ways that we uh, express that is through work. Now, work, you can probably tell or might be beginning to see in our text, is a very broad term. We tend to think of work as sort of your nine to five, your seven to three or whatever hours you might do. Shift work, you know, might be various different times and various different weeks. But God's definition of work is far broader. I've divided it into three different spheres for us to look at in his broad design. The first uh, sphere is family building or being fruitful and multiplying. Part of the work that God has given us to do is to create families. Families. This is work that God said. Be fruitful and multiply. Procreate. Have children, have families, develop long-term relationships with one another, learn how to get along, provide for each other, learn the love of a growing family and relationships together. Now, we know that this is complex because not everyone can marry, not everyone can have children for various reasons. And yet God has designed us to be part of families and to contribute to the family unit. God's design for family is much larger and more diverse than what we know as the nuclear family, which is a fairly new concept really given to us in the last century. We know that many traditional and more ancient cultures, family was an idea of a community, of extended you know, parents and relatives and uncles and aunties who weren't necessarily related and yet working together as a unit to bless and look after each other in various ways. God's design for family is different. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 49. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus incorporates people into his family who partner with him in doing God's will. Family... This idea of family is about being part of God's purpose in the world. Now, something, just a quick point of application here. This gives great dignity to those who decide they are going to focus on family building. On family building. Right? So if you're a, uh, a wife or a mother and you decide you need to take time out, when you have a child, you need to take time out from work in order to look after children. You take a pay cut 
You might take a career break for several years, maybe decades long, in order to invest in family. That, before God, is considered work. It's considered dignified. It's considered part of his God-glorifying purpose. Now, let's look at the other side. Some mums need to go back to work. And they feel guilt then when they're not at home with the family and the children. And yet you can still go back to work and do a God-glorifying work by participating in a vocation, in bringing good to the world and blessing others in your ordinary vocation whilst managing your home environment as best you can. Both can be honouring to God because God doesn't deal in guilt Because you can have career guilt too. I know many mums face that, and dads too perhaps, when they are constrained by family and they think, I could have gotten further ahead if I didn't have children. But what we're thinking is there's only one true valuable work there, that is vocational work. But the Bible tells us no, that family work is as important to God as vocational work and is a very important sphere that we ought to invest in. The question, rather than thinking about what makes me feel less guilty, right, because that often motivates us, doesn't it? The question we should be asking is, how can I most glorify God providing for my family? And we are constrained by our current economic situation, our culture, what our parents did, what schools we want to send our children to, all of these things. And yet the question we ought to ask ourselves, without the guilt is how can I most glorify God providing for my family? So that's the family sphere. That's to be fruitful and multiply. We also have the society building through our vocations sphere, what we normally call work. This is the idea of subduing the earth, being fruitful in it. This is where we continue to follow our Imago Day or being in the image of God by creating, by producing, by bringing order out of chaos, by serving other people and seeking to bring a general good with our broader human family. Now, you can imagine uh, how this might play out, you know, this idea of being fruitful, this idea of subduing the earth. You imagine an apple farmer. But an apple farmer, in order to just to starting from scratch, has to prepare some land. I have to find a parcel of land where there's decent rainfall, where there's decent soil, and they begin to prepare the land for where they're going to put uh, their apple trees, where they're going to sow their seed or to put their saplings in. They need to set up an irrigation system. They need to plant the trees, they need to care for the trees, they need to prune the trees, and they need to wait season in, season out until the trees are ready to bear fruit. There's an enormous amount of work that goes into it. And yet eventually, as the apple trees do produce fruit, they harvest, they employ people to come in, fruit pickers to come in to harvest the trees, and they sell them, and that is the crunchy apple that we get from Woolies. But there's an enormous amount of work that's gone into it. And you would hope that that apple farmer has made a profit so they can put something on the table. But notice that all the effort is, and all the work that goes into it blesses in multiple different ways. Bringing order out of chaos, making a cultivated land, making cultivated trees, giving employment to people, providing produce that we can eat. You know, making sure that it tastes good, making sure that there aren't pests and diseases in the apples themselves. You know, making sure they've got a good economy of scale 
so they can afford to do it. This is how we express ourselves through the various vocations that we have. This work that God has given us to do, whether it be in family building or whether it be in the ordinary vocations that we take up, is to be for the good of others and in order to provide for our families in this world. So God, yes, God cares very much about the work that you do. I've heard it said, God doesn't care what you do. God definitely cares what you do. God definitely cares what you do, the career that you uh, get involved in. We're in an unusual situation in our time and place where you can kind of choose your own path a little bit. You've got financial constraints and educational restraints, but for the most part, we live in a society where you can choose your path. God is very interested and concerned about what path you choose because of your internal motivations, right? There are paths you can choose to bring much good to others using your time, talent, expertise, whatever it is, your interests to bring much good to others and there are ways when you can take away good from others. Imagine the person who goes and does an engineering degree. Uh, They learn how to make microchips and they, you know, do a bit of work with IT as well. And they construct a microchip to improve the odds of the pokey machine right, down at the local uh, pub where someone comes in you know, at 11pm uh, at night and presses a button to try and get a thrill from the machine. Do you think that sort of work is bringing order to the world? Do you think that kind of work is bringing a general good to others. No, of course it isn't. We must put our biblical lenses on and think, yes, God does care about what we do. It's very important to him. So we have uh, the first sphere, which is family building. We have the second sphere, which is society building through our vocations. This goes to every industry. It goes to the development of education. But here we move uh, to a larger sphere, again, what we call nation Building. This is the idea of fill the earth, nation building. This is where we think of government. This is where we think of institutions. This is where we think of higher and lower education, different industry groups, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, trades of various kinds, all working together in an ecosystem in order to create something that would fill the earth and subdue it in order to have something where this world functions well and people are looked after and provided for. The Bible tells us that the fear of God, that wisdom and righteousness exalts a nation. If you do these things in their right order, with God as your creator and Lord, and people as the people that you serve, not as your servants, then God will bless and look after your nation. And yet when you rule with foolishness, With godlessness and with evil, God will bring you down. He may do it over decades, he may do it over centuries, but he will do it. And the higher you rise, the lower you will fall as a nation. There's an interesting example. I've been reading a book by uh, Vishal Mangalwadi. It's called The Book That Made Your World. And he quotes um, during the... 18th century, a guy called Bishop Berkeley, so he was a, a Christian uh, bishop, an Anglican bishop in, uh, the, in Britain at the time, 
And it's talking about the level of godlessness and debauchery that was in general society then. This was a Christian nation. He's saying that uh, religion and morality had to collapse to a degree that was never before known in any Christian country. Things can go from high to low very, very quickly. This is the era when slavery was rife. This is the African slave trade that was going on. It was promoted and encouraged because of the enormous wealth that could be taken from it. This is when uh, gin was made on every street corner. People were dying in the streets from alcohol poisoning. This is when corruption was rife, that you could not get ahead unless you paid someone off. And even then, you were trapped within a corrupt system. This is when children were on the streets and they were sold into prostitution and into the mines to work as little five-year-olds. This is when poverty ruled, prostitution ruled, infanticide ruled because children were too expensive to look after, lawlessness ruled and thievery ruled in what we know as Christian England. This uh, time in the early 18th century was a time of absolute debauchery. Today, we really don't know how bad it was back then. But if you read your history, you will see that things can descend very far. How did God interrupt all of this? You know, was it through social reform? Reformers coming in to bring about better laws that look after? No, because the general progression of culture was getting worse. How were things reformed in the early 18th century in England? I mentioned these guys before, but uh, there was a couple of guys called John Wesley and uh, George Whitfield, who used to meet together with some other Christian uh, pastors to pray and to experience God. And at one point, uh, these guys had a profound experience. Wesley uh, says that his heart was strangely warmed uh, when he believed that Jesus had died for his personal sin. And that Jesus had risen for the dead for him, not just generally, not just some religious idea, but it was done for him. And that message got into his heart, a message that there is a God who cares about how you live and how society operates and what families look like and what jobs you do. There is a God who came to take the sin of the world on his own shoulders for the evil work that we had done so that he would bless us, not destroy us. There is a God who cares. And he preached that message. He called it glad tidings of salvation. These dear men began to preach this good news about Jesus throughout the world. And what happened? Social reform. The prohibition was brought in. People stopped drinking. They, they outlawed people bootlegging alcohol. There were welfare laws were put in. Children were, uh, uh, were stopped working in the mines. They curtailed infanticide. They stopped the slave trade. They brought about an order to society. Why? Because people began to come under the rule of God. The great social reform, the great political transformations that happened came because the hearts of the people were changed by believing in Jesus and so their minds were now shaped by God's word. That's what happened. 
Now, this is good application for us today, right? Because we're, many Christians are rightly concerned about the trajectory of culture today. Rightly concerned. Rightly concerned about the way the West is diverting from its Christian roots and heritage. Yet, sometimes we think we just need more politicians. And then we'll be fixed. We need more Christian politicians. Sometimes we think we need better laws. And then things will be fixed. Sometimes we think we need better social reformers. Then things will be fixed. We need more social justice. Then things will be fixed. No. Those things may help, but they won't change the human heart. God's plan and God's purpose for the transformation of society is through faith in Jesus Christ and a worldview, a lens that sees things based on the Bible. Because God's righteousness exalts a nation. For it is God who changes the heart of his people that will produce the fruit of righteousness in society. Let's not get things back to front. The greatest prayer that you can have, whilst we ought pray for justice and morality issues and social issues and economic issues, which face many people in our culture and time, we ought pray more that God would change the hearts through people believing in Jesus Christ as Lord, because that is the only thing that will save people now and in the life to come. So there is a good design for work, but perhaps we've missed it. There's also a trouble that comes with work. Two um, South Australian alumni, Mark Oliphant and Howard Florey, were both born three years apart uh, in Adelaide. Uh, I think Howard Florey was um, educated at Goodwood Primary School, would you believe it, as a uh, young man that went up into Mylor to finish his education. Brett Mason, in his book, The Wizards of Oz, spoke about these two. He said, Oliphant and Florey led teams that over a period of 100 days in the early 1940s developed the device that was critical to winning the war, which is a microwave radar, conceived the powerful weapon that ended it, that is the atomic bomb, and produced the miracle treatment that enabled countless casualties to survive it. Penicillin. Would you believe it? From little old Adelaide. These two. However, in recalling these events... Oliphant, whose research led to the atomic bomb being produced and dropped on Hiroshima, couldn't reconcile how death was the outcome of his intended good. He carried the burden of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima the rest of his life. He'd rejected Christianity because it provided no meaning to him in a very complex world of work. Because sometimes, even when we design to do good, evil comes. We've got Genesis 1 and a good design of work, and we've got Genesis 3, and it says work is frustrated, becomes troublesome, and becomes toil. We have a world where work can rule over us. We become slaves to it. We live in a world where you can work and yet you cannot make ends meet. We live in a world where in some parts of it, you can work day in, day out, backbreaking work and still live well below the poverty line. Something is wrong with work. 
It's called sin. Sin has entered the world and corrupted what God has made good. So work is frustrated. God still has designed it good, and so there's much good that we can do and be involved in with work, and yet there is a frustration to it. That's where we uh, get this new term in Genesis chapter 3 called toil. Work that is frustrated, work that is fruitless, work that can be pointless. One of the ways uh, that God has designed work is that it's limited. It's limited. But we have frustrated work and made it into something that rules us, or we have gone into overwork. God made it so that we ought to work six days and rest one as a bare minimum. In Australia, we get two days off generally, which is very unusual uh, around the world. And historically, normally people would work six or seven days. But uh, when you are informed by the Bible and you're formed by God's worldview, you are to work six and rest one as a minimum. So work has a limit, but we are frustrated by overwork in our day because of sin. We often find ourselves stuck between at two ends, right? I mentioned this earlier. We feel uh, pulled or stretched between living to work, as in being pulled in by our vocation, that all our interests, our needs are met by our vocation. And at the other end, we seem pulled by working to live, as in what about the rest of life? What about family? What about uh, recreation? What about time off? What about rest? And so we feel like we're either stressed when we're you know, living to work or we're lazy when we're working to live and we just can't find somewhere in the middle that we ought to be. But God has come. God has come to free us from these opposed positions and give divine purpose to our work. God has come to invite us in, in his image, that work is no longer means to an end. It's no longer your identity. You know, who are you? Most of us say our vocation. You know? It's no longer to define us. Work is what, part of what we do, but the aim and purpose of it is to worship and to glorify God in partnership with him. So there is an overwork as part of the frustration of work. There's also a fruitlessness to work. That is, we can work hard for most of our life and have little to show for it. We can have one bad investment that we thought was going to be good and lose it all. We can you know, buy that dream house, work and renovating it for 20 years, and then finally when it's finished, it's on the market and we're off to the next one. Doesn't that happen? Work has a fruitlessness to it. Good example, on Friday, uh, we have this family vineyard, 70-year-old Grenache grapes. We're going to produce our first uh, wine harvest this year, hopefully, that's the plan. So we've been slowly sort of you know, working on uh, these grape vines, uh, getting them ready for harvest. There's a, an enormous amount of work that goes into it. And our Friday job was netting. So we're supposed to be putting the nets on so that the birds don't eat the harvest, right? That would be um, disorder and chaos. The chaotic birds would descend and eat the grapes, no wine for anyone, all right? So the point of that, uh, putting the nets on, is to stop the birds, so we go out, get there early, you know, setting up, putting the nets on, working out how to put them down, stake them down, 
uh, working out. You've got to thread um, this fishing line between the nets to sew them together. And we'd never done this before, so it pretty much took the whole day just to work out what we were doing. And actually, we got from the beginning of the day to the end, working in the hot sun, you know, sweating, carrying on, get to the end of the day, and actually we were worse off than when we'd started. And you just say, man, that was just pointless, wasn't it? Should have read the manual or looked up another YouTube video before we had a go at that. So there's this fruitlessness that can come, right? You sit at the end of a day, you've worked your guts out, you've done all this stuff, and it produced nothing. I mean, you hope there was some learning in there somewhere, but we're just trying to encourage ourselves. It was really a pointless day. There is a frustration to the fruitlessness of our world, and sometimes it's not that funny for many of the people in this world. There's another frustration. It's a frustration of pointlessness. What's the point? What does it all mean? Why do I go to work every day? What am I doing there? When our work is for our own pleasure or our own provision exclusively, there's only so long that we can go on without, it, without us needing a bigger meaning to it. Because we realise that those things are empty. If we're just seeking to fill our pockets or to get pleasure from our work in itself, it either rules and enslaves us or leaves us feeling empty at the end. The problem is we have this dream, you know, and it might start out at school. We get it, if we go to a trade or go to a university or go straight into employment, that if we finally make it in our career, then I'll be happy. If I finally get enough money from my employment, then I'll be happy. And I tell you, people get to the end and say, I wasn't happy. I should have done things differently. So friends, let me say, don't start out thinking that. You need purpose and meaning to your work. And the only true purpose and meaning, because we were designed for it, is to work as worship to God. His purpose is to bring good even from our failures. Even There's this beautiful promise in Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That is, even our frustrated, even our seemingly pointless work, even our failures and everything else, God in his sovereign power, in his work, can bring it together to produce good. That is, if you believe in Jesus, if he is your Lord and Saviour, then he goes to work with your work. You know how he invites us into partnership with him? You know, to, to work in this world that he's created, to be a worker like God is a worker in his image? Well, he comes back and says, I'll work with you. I'll work in you. That nothing is lost with him. This is why the Apostle Paul can say rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, even though he's facing a really bad day. Because he knows that God is working good out of even his failure. And that is a wonderful thing. You can be an optimist because you trust in the living and sovereign God over your work. Work has much trouble to it. But as we get to the New Testament, we see that God himself put on flesh and gave us Jesus. And Jesus was a carpenter, which is probably a builder, actually, in the first century. He would have, we think, 
built things, whether it was furniture or kitchens or maybe houses themselves. He was a builder working with his hands. If you're a tradesperson here this morning, you know that your God who made the heavens and the earth also made things out of the heavens and the earth with his hands. Your work is dignified. Jesus was also a teacher. It's a more clerical work. He sort of covers blue collar and white collar together. But interestingly, Jesus' greatest work was not his teaching or his building. It was his other work. Jesus had another kind of work. And this was one given to him by the Father. Read this in John 5. It says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus has another kind of work that he's doing. Another kind, a special work. It says in John 17, 4, that he completed the work. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus has this other kind of work that he completed, that he did, and he fulfilled it without failure. Jesus' work was bringing the kingdom of God to bear on humanity. John's gospel describes these as signs, or some places, works, where his power would come upon people, come upon circumstances and interrupt them with God's perfect uh, power. So we see a hint of Genesis 1 coming into John's gospel. You know, we see uh, water turned into wine. We see Jesus laying his hands upon people and healing them. The people who were born blind, receiving their sight. Jesus brings, through his work, the kingdom of God to bear upon the world. So Jesus worked. This should mean for you and I that if Jesus labored, if Jesus was part of a family, if Jesus was part of society and paid his taxes, then everything that we do in the broad understanding of work that I've laid out already, has value, meaning, and purpose to it because God himself did it humanly. Everything matters to him, the whole lot. There's no part of your life that doesn't matter to God. Everything does. If he says he's Lord of heaven and earth, he's Lord of everything in your life and every work. There was one more work to come, one more sign. Jesus would do one more work. There would be his greatest work. You know how sometimes you get a, a great artist, a great composer, a great uh, you know, filmmaker, and they have their magnum opus, their, their great work that they produce. Well, Jesus had his own great work that he produced. He was wrongly tried and accused through the human courts, the religious and the secular. He was taken off to a hill outside of Jerusalem, put on a tree which he called into existence, made into a cross by workers, nails hammered into his hands and feet from the ore that he'd put in the ground, fashioned into nails 
by people that he'd made, hammered in to his hands by Roman soldiers to whom he'd given the wisdom to, to, and by governments and lawmakers to make into armies that had structure and order to them and they nailed him to a cross to kill him. And yet this was his greatest work. This was his magnum opus. This was his triumph. This was the one, the masterpiece, above all masterpieces, everyone would look at and be speechless. On that cross, Jesus did the work that extinguishes all other works because every human being has been trying to get blessing through their work for all eternity. We've been trying that if I work enough, I will get something good out of this. And the religious people, who is the majority of the world for the majority of time, have been trying to get a blessing out of a divine power that if I do enough, if I work hard enough, in a religious sense, in my family, in my vocation, in my nation building, if I work hard enough, then this God, this divine power, reincarnation, whatever you want, will finally accept me. And yet when God himself comes and does his final work, he does it just like he did in Genesis 1. He does the work and gives us the blessing. He says, no, you cannot nation build your way out of sin. You cannot family build your way out of sin. You cannot vocation your way out of sin and the destruction in this world. You can only do it if God himself comes to work for you. And that's what Jesus did on the cross, taking all the penalty for sin on himself, the just penalty for sin. All the bad and evil that's been done in history poured onto Jesus himself. He said, I would rather take it myself than deal it out to you. In love. In love. And his great work, his great magnum opus with an empty tomb. This man who died on a cross rises from the dead. Offering new life to anyone who would believe in him to say of Jesus, your work that you did on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago was for me, just like John Wesley realised. That work that was done 2,000 years ago was for me, as I'm going to take it on. I'm going to receive it. I'm going to believe it. And that will change everything. It means that ordinary work becomes kingdom work. We finish with this, the redemption of work. This is, uh, I think, encaptured very well for us in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Emphasizing again, what God has done for you is a gift, freely offered, given. You don't do it, he does it. But when you get it, when you realise it, when the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, becomes the centre of your life, it changes everything. Listen to this in John 6, 29. It says, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. God works in us through believing. Think about it. All your work, everything you invest your time in, in your family building, in your vocational building, you know, and we're all a part of nation building in one way or another. In all of it, 
If you have Jesus as your focus, then it becomes worship. Then all of your work has meaning and purpose and it has the hand of God inside of it. Think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus was not a, did not start a corporate conglomerate, did he? Didn't have sort of you know, businesses in every town. He could have, surely, right? He would have been the best builder probably in Nazareth, but just didn't make a big deal about it as far as we know. He wasn't a, a, you know, a, an Elon Musk, you know, like corporate magnate. Jesus wasn't a general, head of an army. He wasn't a politician. Right? He didn't, you know, get into the highest echelons of the secret back rooms of this world to take power and to work his way to the top. And yet no one has transformed the world like Jesus has. Why? Because he was in step with the will of the Father. And your work, my work, can have eternal significance, not because of our position in society, not because of our vocation fulfills our deepest human needs, because it won't, but because it's transformed and becomes kingdom work. It's transformed because it becomes for God and for others rather than for yourself which it won't satisfy anyway. God's work is to change our work into kingdom work. God's work is to take what has been corrupted, tainted, stained by sin, and transform it into something beautiful. And if you let Jesus really in, he knocks at the door, right? He knocks on the door of your heart. If you let him in, just let him in, and that your needs, you let your needs become his problem. You let your life come at his disposal, become at his disposal. It'll change everything. Absolutely everything. Family, the guilt goes. The mum guilt goes. Vocation, you start to work for good rather than for self. Nation building. When many people get this, when many people are transformed by believing, it transforms a nation. That's what this country needs. Sure, it'd be great to have more Christian politicians. Sure, it'd be great to have better laws. Sure, it'd be great to have better care for the poor, the marginalised. Sure, it'd be great to have lower interest rates, better economic policy or whatever. But better than all these are people who believe in Jesus, the one who worked for them. Then we'll get a great transformation in this country. I've been reading uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, it's just part of my usual devotional reading um, up to chapter 45. And in chapter 45, Joseph Joseph uh, is in power in Egypt. And if you, if you know the story, um, Joseph was uh, a younger brother. He's got 11 other brothers who didn't like him. And he was a bit obstinate, you know, a bit annoying, sort of thought too much of himself as the youngest. And there's a bit of favoritism in the family too. So it wasn't all his fault. But eventually his brothers sort of you know, decide, we're going to get you. They initially want to kill him, but they decide to sell him uh, off 
into slavery in Egypt. And God does this work in, this work, in Joseph's heart whilst he is a slave. Joseph uh, ends up serving in Potiphar's household, a sort of fairly prestigious job, works his way to the top because he's a good worker. And then uh, with an unjust uh, incident, is thrown into prison. So it doesn't, uh, it doesn't sort of immediately rise to the top. No, it goes lower. And yet, while he's in prison, there is a hidden and a secret work going on in his heart where Joseph begins to believe that God is doing something here. A transformation takes place, right? Everything outside looks bad. He's getting demoted. And yet God is doing something inside. So much so that when his brothers come, the ones who were going to kill him and sold him into slavery and told his father that he was dead, when his brothers come because there's a famine in the land, he blesses them. He says, don't be troubled or angry with yourselves. God ultimately did this. Where are his eyes? His eyes aren't on his brothers who did the wrong thing to him. His eyes are on God. And so Joseph's position, because he rises out of prison to be the prime minister of Egypt, would you believe it? There's hardly been a greater rise in human history. When he rises into a great position, he doesn't use it for himself. He uses it to bless. Even though he's got the power to put his brothers to death and to pay them back and to get revenge, he doesn't use it for himself. He uses it to bless, to forgive, and he encourages them that God has done this. He will work it for good. Look at this beautiful phrase at the end of Genesis. Or man intentioned for evil. God intentioned for good. And we have a much greater promise and much greater example than Joseph. We have Jesus. Because what man intentioned for evil and putting him on a cross, God intentioned for good. He can redeem your work. He will. He may take you low to do it. But that's just the place we often need to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for work. We thank you for transforming uh, our lives through your work, through giving us work to do that is meaningful, even when it might seem meaningless. Thank you for giving purpose to our work and making it worship because you bring your kingdom to live inside of us. Lord God, help us this day. Help us this year. Help us as your people to be witnesses of Jesus and to pray bigger works not just for societal change, but for spiritual transformation. May you do this great work in our country. May you do this great work in our city, bringing many thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people people to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, that we might fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and see your glory come down upon us. I give you thanks this morning in Jesus' name.